Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrived, he treats me like a commodity. Give me a speck on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old, don't know value. Welcome, everybody, to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we talk about customer perceived value. Today, I am thrilled to have Mikey Maynard, uh, who is um, like not only a prince of a man, but is a real has a real interesting practice. Mikey, welcome. Hey, thanks, Mark. So, Mikey works within Kaiser real estate uh who is a tenant representation it's that's already kind of usual uh, unusual in the commercial real estate world in that kaiser only works with tenants of commercial real property so they don't have any of the uh conflict but mikey works in human performance uh people performance assessment leadership and so forth so mikey tell us a little bit about that and why you're there and and how you landed there well you know, what's on the mind of executive officers of companies is their operating ratio. You know, expense as a, as a portion of revenue. And we find that with commercial real estate or facilities expense, typically being the second or third largest hit on the books on the expense side, and people being for sure the biggest hit on the books, if we can economize on a commercial real estate tenant's facility expense and improve their people's performance, we've just affected the first and second biggest expense lines on the books and we're probably gonna move the operating ratio. That's real business results. And to our knowledge, Kaiser based in Scottsdale, Arizona is the only tenant rep commercial firm that offers a full-fledged human capital practice so that we can move the needle for our clients. I, you know, I think that's awesome. Um, I, I love that business model. I love the fact that you're thinking more globally about your clients. Um, I was in commercial real estate lending and there was one mm -hmm. mindset among people who wanted to own their own real estate and another mindset of people who wanted to conserve their capital, lease, and so they were thinking very much, very differently in the mindset of a tenant rep is very different and um, it mirrors my own mindset. So when you're talking to people like your clients who would rather rent than own, uh, they also are looking for ways to optimize their business. So well, you know, none of us are good market everything in life. And a lot of company officers are really great at running their business in their industry sector and producing results for shareholders and investors and the like, but they're not really schooled to be landlords. So straying away from focus to become a building owner doesn't always make sense for every business operator. Sometimes staying within your core competency makes a certain amount of sense. Sure. Um, you know, I, I did uh, some deals for the, the big pet food warehouse company and they're uh, adamant about never owning their real estate. Because if you think about it, 
um, a bag of dog food that maybe has a 5% profit margin, you can turn that bag of dog food 15, 20, 30 times a year. So the, the capital you invested in that dog food at a 10% margin, even if it was only 10% margin, times 30 turns a year is way better return than you can get in any real estate market if you take that same number of dollars and put it into your building. Yep. So um, it makes sense for a lot of business to put their capital in their people and in their business and in their inventory, not in their real estate, uh, in spite of the fact that real estate is a very stable investment. Or traditionally has been during the great recession that we experienced I think we myth busted a little at, at whether real estate will always be an appreciating investment. A lot of homeowners found out that wasn't true in the Great Recession. And then with the 2020 uh, COVID pandemic, economic shutdowns and the likes, we're seeing uh, building values plummet. And a lot of landlords are in real trouble now where they thought this would be a continuously recurring revenue stream growing over time. I think we've myth busted that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So your practice within Kaiser, I, you know, is this sort of a, a, a luxury, you get to work with the clients you want and you work with, you'd get to do what you love with the clients you love working with sort of a. Sort yeah, of I would say of, of all of us at Kaiser in Scottsdale, Arizona, we're having more fun than adults should really be allowed to have. Uh, we all worked for the colossal traditional firms in the past, you know, producing hundreds of millions of dollars in, in fee income for the investors of those companies and didn't have much fun. We were kind of working for the man, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So now we'll only take on a client if it's gonna be fun for all parties. It's actually one of our core operating principles, principle nine in the Kaiser 15 core operating principles. Um, and so we have the great luxury to recommend a client to another firm if it's not a good fit for our business model and our culture and vice versa. If we can't serve the client, we would never pretend that we can. And, and in all the work you've done, you know, Mark, genuineness in the sales cycle and open candor about who you can do a good job for and honestly who your firm probably can't do a good job for is a big part of the prospect qualifying process. You know, um, you're, you're absolutely right. I love the idea that you're in a point, at a point where you take the best clients, but that's a self-building, self self-fulfilling sort of thing. Um, when you work for the clients you love, you do better work, which means you get more of those same kind of clients. Um, yep. So, but that's a really good transition into your people practice. Um, you want to help your clients have that same sort of experience with their people. And um, your expertise is, uh, is all around the HR, you know, the people performance, which from assessment to coaching to leadership, uh, you work with uh, predictive index, is that right? Mm -hmm. um, on assessments. Here's something I, I, when I look at assessments, 
uh, in the segment of sales and, and companies and clients that I work with, it tends to be uh, highly differentiated companies trying to differentiate with their clients. Basically, a sales force who's trying to grow the business of their customers, which calls for some business acumen and really some customer-centered thinking. And a lot of the assessments that I've seen are lighter than I think I would like on customer empathy, desire to grow your company, your customer's business. Um, am, am I missing something or is there a gap that that's really there? Well, so I've for 20 plus years, Mark, been on a passionate journey to discover the secret sauce for why top performers in all sorts of jobs are in fact the top. How are they different than their average and poor performing counterparts? How can that be? Work for the same company, sell the same product to the same market set, some excel, others struggle, a lot fail. How can that be? And a big part of what I've discovered over the years is that in retrospect, if we understood the secret sauce of the top performers, we coulda, shoulda, woulda known before even hiring prospective candidates, which ones were gonna be in the elite few that could succeed. Therefore, it would give a company operator the chance to only hire top performers and to have an organization which really excels. In the example you just shared, which is sales or revenue production, if we could figure out what makes for that secret sauce, then all we would do is go to market and seek talent that already possesses the secret sauce instead of trying to train it, teach it, coach it, manage and discipline it once they're hired. And, and on your specific example about customer centricity, I recently did a study of top performers for an industry leading B2B software as a service company their solutions are extremely expensive. We're talking a, a typical transaction in the millions of dollars. So you can imagine that's a long sales cycle and a complex consultative sale. And I was stunned when we did some assessment work and learned strongly statistically significantly that their top performing account executives and top performing sales managers all classified as farmers instead of hunters. Now, here's why that shocked me. Talk to any leader of any company and they'll say things like, what I want in an outside account executive is some fire in the belly. I want them to be a hunter. I want them to be resourceful and get over, under, around obstacles. I want them to stand their ground and be a challenger when they sell. Okay, I kind of believe that as well. And yet I have a large scale study of a successful industry leading company where all of their top performers had none of those traits. Instead, they were good at sticking with the support of the prospect during a very long, uh, more than six month sales cycle. The patience to deal with reversals, objections, proofs of concept, field trials, and a hunter would lose patience and ricochet off of that deal. So the value of an assessment is to debunk the mythology that we get in our leadership culture where we think we know what we want in our top performers, because if it's wrong, we're hiring the wrong people. Does that make sense, Mark? 
I completely, um, completely makes sense. And uh, I've, I've seen that uh, other research where in that kind of a long sales cycle environment, introverts mm-hmm. uh, tend to do outperform extroverts because they listen. They tend to be more consultative. They tend to uh, be much more customer oriented and they're, they're listening for the right things and they get the customer's situation. Yeah, the best-selling author, Daniel Pink, wrote a book a couple of years ago called To Sell is Human. Now, keep in mind, Dan Pink is not a sales guy, but he's passionately interested in the secrets of performance over the world. And so he thought he would focus his scientific lens on sales. And one of the things he discovers in the book is that your strongest sales performers are, get ready for this term, Mark, what he phrases as ambiverts they can be extroverted when the situation calls for it but as you just identified when it's more appropriate given the audience to take a back seat and not be glad handing a back slapping and telling jokes the introverted side kicks in so i'm all with you and so is daniel pink in his book to sell as human yeah you know for several years now i've had kind of a a, a thing uh, a love-hate relationship with the the book, The Challenger Sale. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was at Miller Hyman, uh, we had some big clients, like one of the biggest uh, telecommunication service providers in the world, uh, tested all of their people. And they replicated the Challenger study and found it of their top performers, uh, about half of them were these challengers who challenged the customer's mindset. But what they found was that in their bottom performers, about half of their bottom performers were challengers. Yep. <laughs> were, were annoying know-it-alls. And the original challenger research uh, tested only average performers and top performers. Mm-mm. And they didn't test the bottom Mm-mm. performers in the original research because they don't matter. Well, it turns out... Uh, so what I, you know, what I tell clients is go ahead and hire a challenger. Uh, at least, you know, they're not going to be average. <laughs> Half of them are going to alienate your clients and drive them away. And, and it, it'll be a race between top performers and alienators. But um, at least, you know, they won't be average. So, um, but, but the idea of the challenger, the idea of this ambivert, so you know, I used to joke with people that the best sales sales uh, type is not the lone wolf, is not the challenger, it's the chameleon, which mm-hmm. is kind of what Daniel Pink called the ambivert. Um, for a while, I thought that personal relationship, that, you know, I, I we always taught that uh, customer relationship quality actually had two components. One was personal affinity and the other was credibility, where personal credibility is, you know, the whiskey and tickets. I know the kids' birthdays and uh, yep. we laugh and joke together. And But credibility was the one non-negotiable. You can get nothing done without credibility. So mm-hmm. be you, you as a sales professional can choose to be that personal affinity type or not, but what you can't choose is credibility. Mm-hmm. And I've softened from that. Uh, because it's not what the salesperson wants to be, how much personal affinity the salesperson wants. It's how much of the personal affinity that individual person at the customer wants. Mm-hmm. And so you have to honestly and sincerely mirror what your customer wants as closely as you can do so 
genuinely? The way I phrase it is, as a salesperson, as a sales professional at any level, if you need to be liked by the customer, you're going to be an average to poor performer. What you should instead focus on is being respected by the customer. So personal affinity, friendships, going out to ball games together, dropping off gifts has its place, but it won't sustain the long-term strategic partnership that you talk about in your book, Radical Value, where we understand the customer supply chain practices and what sort of a supply chain partner are they looking for if I'm gonna sell my product or service that will never happen based on personal friendship. It happens based on business respect. Yeah, you know, and we're recording this in the middle of July. Uh, so we are, as a nation, as a world, we're wrestling with COVID-19. Uh, just for context, if you listen to this much later, we're wondering if we're going to go into a second wave where states are wondering whether they're going to have to lock down again. And I don't know what's really going to happen because uh, we're, we're talking before that, but looking back at the first half of 2020, I think a lot of those relationship people who haven't been able to get in contact with their people and have the lunches, um, a lot of the flaws in that selling style have been laid bare. What do you think? Well, there's actually some imperial backup to that. Because remember, we struggled for a decade through the Great Recession. And I think sales greatly changed as a result of the Great Recession. And an example I would share is in the example of residential home building. So pre-Great Recession, supply chain partners who sold all the various things that go into getting a home built, you know, concrete and stem walls and carpentry services and plumbing, I can go on and on and on, tended to sell on a relationship sale. They had their circuit they made of all the home builders and they carried their bag with them and they showed the stuff over lunch or drinks or on the boat or at the ball game and the buying party for the builder loved the relationship and kind of wouldn't entertain third-party new vendors because they were such a friend with good old Harvey at the sales organization. And then the recession hit. And right away, estimators and procurement officers with the big home builders received the clear message. If you can't drive a new home's price down substantially, you're going to lose your job. And so the buying cycle changed, the supply chain changed, and the estimators and the procurement officers would send out bids for all the components that go into making a house and they would select the lowest line item for that particular thing from among a set of suppliers they would reassemble that into a master document and again send it out to every bidder and say if you can't meet the lowest price on each and every component here you don't get our business and the relationship sellers said, but what about the times, the good times out on the boat? What about the ball games? And the procurement officer said, you don't understand. If I can't drive total cost of construction down, I lose my job. Love you as a person. I'll be glad to see you at next Friday's soccer game. 
but you either get your price down or I got to go find somebody else. And I believe with the shutdown pertaining to the COVID-19 pandemic, we're going to see a move that way again. And again, the traditional relationship only palsy wowsy seller is going to underperform. Yeah. Because they don't understand the business reality inside their client or prospect company. Yeah, I was. I actually had a guest who was uh, the sales training leader of the world's largest hearth and fireplace manufacturer. So they sell wow. they sell to uh, home builders, and they don't differentiate on price. They're you know they're they're in the ballpark. They're an acceptable price. So that either means they're lowest or tied for, but they differentiate based on their service. When we say that fireplace is going to be on the building site. 99.9% .9 of the time, it's going to be there. And the impact that has is that if the fireplace is late, those installers don't work that day. And That's that right. means in the schedule, in a production building schedule, it's a, it's a closely choreographed ballet. That means the, uh, the insulators can't come in tomorrow. Mm -hmm. That means the next day, the sheet rockers can't come in. That means the day after that and on and on and on, you kill the whole schedule. And of course, when labor's tight, I've got to pay those sheet rockers. I can't just tell them don't work today or find something else because they'll never come back. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly that fireplace, which is 1% of the cost of the home turns into a huge headache. You can't have that. And so the value of that component is not that it exists, not that it's there, not that it's the right price, but it's at the right time price at the right time. And so uh, they were very clear that it wasn't palsy wowsy, it was be reliable. Again, Reliabi reliability, don't, everything. Don't try to get your customer to like you, get them to respect your performance for them. Yeah. So now you also, and so you also work on uh, coaching and leadership. Before I, I get to that, uh, we've been talking about getting the right kind of people. And first of all, you had some surprising findings on who is the right kind of people. But now if you want to hire only those people, you have to have a mindset as a hiring manager, as a sales leader, as an HR leader, that there is a finite number of those people. And it's to our benefit if we're looking for these farmers when everybody else is looking for the, the hunters, but there's still only a finite number of those farmers who have the right business acumen and the right other skills besides just the, the basics of being a farmer. And uh, you and I have talked a little bit about this idea of talent share. Now that I know who I want to get, there's a finite number of those people out there. How do I make sure that I effectively get the right number of people. Yeah. yeah, your audience are business officers and sales professionals. And so terms like market share are well understood. It's taught in business schools. It's, you know, market shares a, a calculation and a formula. We all understand it. And salespeople and marketing people know about things like mind share and wallet share. Well, I'm a big advocate for why is nobody talking about talent share? Every company I can think of on the planet at some level needs people in order to perform the work, deliver the product, collect the revenue or whatever it is the company does. So all companies' business operating results hinge on productive 
performing employees. There are a finite number of those out there. And so of those who could be available to your company at some future point, how many are in your pipeline? How many are you in regular conversation with? How many of those future workers of yours know your company and its culture, visit your website, think fondly and extend goodwill towards you? You haven't offered them a job today, but you need to have a future pipeline of workers. So why don't you pay attention to your talent share? Where would we go to find top performers who could come into our business? And Mark, the answer isn't always obvious. Deloitte, the big five accounting and consulting powerhouse, is now recruiting in the eighth grade. There's an insufficient supply, to your point, of recent college graduates with accounting and finance degrees. So Deloitte can't only hire recent college grads. They have to begin a long-term process of grooming 14 and 15 year olds to think fondly about finance and accounting as a future career and shepherd them through the process of learning about that work, getting funding for their college, et cetera, et cetera. And guess what? Deloitte in a future state will not have to worry as will their competition about where to find accountants and consultants. They will have already formed a pipeline because they understand that's part of the talent share they're going to dominate in their space. Yeah, I think uh, in, that what a great insight. Uh, I absolutely love that. And I, and I can't wait to uh, hear and see more of your work on talent share because I, I think that's a, that's a meaningful, insightful concept. You know, it, uh, with it, companies, uh, visionary companies know that they need to have a succession plan and they start that succession plan maybe from mid-management on up. Um, but now you're talking about developing your succession plan out to pre-hire and to grade school kids. Mm -hmm. um, because in certain industries, you have to. But I love the idea of extending your leadership succession plan on into the into you know pre-high school. I'm fond of saying you're gonna have succession. It's just a question of whether you plan it or not. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Um, Mikey, we, I mean, we could keep talking and maybe we have to have you on for another episode because we are already at about our normal time. Um, so I would maybe come back and talk about coaching and leadership because that's, that's at least two uh, podcasts by itself. So uh, why don't you go ahead and tell people how they can get a hold of you? Because I think people are going to want to uh, contact you and learn more about you and, and what you do and, and the leadership and the insights that you can offer. Well, they can take a fun little journey through a fun company, Kaiser, K-E-Y-S as in Sam, E-R, Kaiser. And as you might guess, Kaiser.com is the website. My work is prominently featured on there. And Mark, you and I share a white paper we've authored together about how to learn the secret sauce of top performers. They can download our white paper there if they care to. Uh, they can, but I, I don't. I don't want to give myself too much credit as the co-author because uh, you're you are the author that did all the heavy lifting. So uh, thanks for the plug, but I'm not going to take credit that I didn't deserve. Somebody the other day said that they were pleased 
that if I was going to help their company, I've got 25 years of experience. And I said, don't fail to understand, I may just have one year of experience 25 times over. <laughs> That's right. Uh, very well done. So Mikey, thanks again for, for a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Uh, thanks everybody for joining us on the Value Clarity Podcast, where, as you know, we believe that value only exists in your customer's mind, which means that your success is all in your customer's head. Thanks and go have a great value day and get some value clarity. Well, it ain't easy, cause value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're gonna drive both of you insane. And if you ignore your customers' outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues, cause you'll be singing those old, don't know value blues. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.